If you were here with us last week, you know that we started a brand new series where we are uh, studying the book of First John. And last week we talked about a few things that I wanted to reiterate before you today. And one of the first things I mentioned is how this is going to be a little bit different than maybe our typical series because truly what we're going to be doing is reading through the Word of God together and discovering truth. Like we're, we're literally just going to be reading straight through Scripture and seeing what God has to say to us. And so one of the things that I challenged you guys with was that you would be doing some personal study of your own throughout the week, that you wouldn't just rely upon our weekend sermons, but that you would continue to dig into this to see what God is trying to tell you specifically. And so I hope that you have already taken that challenge to heart and will continue to do so. But I am um, just so excited to see what God is going to teach us and show us over the course of this 10-week series, and I'm excited about today's message. One of the other things we talked about last week was the ultimate objective of this series. By the end of these 10 weeks, what do we want to have accomplished? And so I talked about three different things that I would love to see. The first thing is that we might be able to see Christ more clearly, that as we read through these words and as we study this, that we could truly see him for who he is with such great clarity, his love and and his grace and, and really who he is, so that number two, we would truly be able to reflect him. That as we see him more clearly, that, that we could truly reflect him in everything that we do and everywhere that we go, that we would be imitators of Christ. Yeah. And then the third thing I said is that I hope that throughout these 10 weeks, each and every one of us falls in love with the word of God. And I mean that, that every single one of us would fall head over heels in love with the word of God. And if you don't think that's possible for you, I promise you that it is. That there are people in our congregation whose lives are being changed right now through the power of his word. And so I promise if you give yourself to this, it will change your life. It will change your perspective. And so that's what I hope we see over the course of the coming weeks and months. Now, um, Last week, before we began to dig in, I wanted to talk a little bit about the the background and the history of this particular book of the Bible, because as you study scripture, it's always important to really see the, the full picture of what is really going on so that we can truly understand what is being said. And so we talked about a few different things. We talked about the author of this particular letter, which is the Apostle John the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the one who is writing this. We talked about the context, the the timing of when and why this was being written. And then we talked about the audience, who exactly this was being written to. And it's actually those latter two things that I wanted to spend a few minutes at the top here digging into a little bit more so we could get some, some important details as we read our scriptures today. And so I wanted to take a few steps back, and I wanted to first talk about the context. And last week, what I told you guys is that what was going on during the time of this writing is that there was a bit of controversy that was taking place because a group of former followers of the faith have now left, and they have begun to to create their own theology of false teaching. Okay, this is what was happening. And I wanted to give you some of the details of this because I think you're going to see that John is going to directly address some of these things in our reading today. 
So follow along with me closely. This is important to understand. The, the basis and the foundation of this misguided theology was that spirit and matter are strictly separate. Okay, meaning that which is spirit is good and that which is matter or material existence is evil. Okay, this was kind of the foundation that they were building this theology on. And initially, that might not sound all that misguided on the surface. However, what this brought with it was a few different very important false teachings that were circulating at this time. And the first one was this. If material existence is inherently evil, that must mean that the life of Christ could not have been a reality. There's just no way that good and evil could possibly coexist like that. So he wasn't flesh and blood. He wasn't a, a real man. In fact, what we thought was real, what we thought suffered and died on the cross was simply a figment of our imagination. This was the first false teaching that began to circulate because of this. The second thing that they came to the conclusion of was if spirit and matter are strictly separate, that means what happens in this material world doesn't really matter. And therefore, that also means that sin and darkness don't matter either. If all that matters is this unseen nature of who we are, then we can do whatever we want in our bodies, and therefore sin is irrelevant. It's, it's not a big deal. It doesn't re really matter. And these are the things that, that are, are circulating at the time of John's writing. And if you keep these in the back of your mind, I, I'm telling you, you will see John almost explicitly teach against these things. Okay, So that's the first thing. The other thing we talked about was the audience. And I told you guys that John was writing this to a group of believers, which is true. That was his intended audience. And in fact, if we skip ahead a bit in this letter, watch carefully how he addresses his readers. This is chapter two, verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Verse 13, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So he's talking to people. He's addressing people whose sins have been forgiven, who know the father, and who have overcome the evil one. So he's clearly directing this towards believers. However, while John is supposing that this is the case, what John also understands is that not every person that says they're a believer is truly a believer. And in fact, we already know the very reason he's writing this letter to begin with is because a group of so-called believers have left the faith and have started to cause some problems. This is the whole reason he's writing this to begin with. Now, the reason it's important to understand is because you'll begin to notice that at times throughout this letter, John goes through what I would call uh, a weeding out process. In other words, he, he wants to encourage and strengthen believers in their journey. He absolutely wants to do that, but he also wants to speak candidly so that any reader that's not a true believer might begin to look inward and see what's really going on in their heart. This is what he's trying to push towards. Now, for the record, the Apostle Paul also took the same approach in many of his letters. Though he is writing to various churches of which he supposes are full of believers, sometimes he stops, he slows things down, and he has them do some self-reflection. 
Let me give you a quick example in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Paul says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. So John is calling for self-reflection. He wants them to look inward, and if they find any inconsistency, then he wants them to address this. And so again, this is something we need to keep in our minds as we see what John says in our reading today, because it's very much going to help us understand what he is saying, okay? Now, with those things laid in front of you, we're going to go through our set of scriptures today. 1 John chapter 1, we're going to go from verse 5 to verse 10. We're going to say a word of prayer, and then we're going to begin to unpack this. So turn in your Bibles, your Bible apps. We'll put this on the screen for you, but follow along starting in verse 5. John says, This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is what we're going to be digging into this morning. But before we do that, can we say a word of prayer if you could bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak into the hearts and lives of your people. Only you know where each one of us is at, and I pray that you would meet us right there. Whatever it is that that we need to hear, whatever it is that we need to unlock within us, I pray that you would do just that. And and I'm I'm so grateful that we've already gotten to feel your presence. We've already been able to, to lift you up, and yet I believe that you have more in store for us. So help us to lean in, to to focus in, to be sensitive to what you are trying to say to us this morning. And we give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So at this point in John's letter, we have just gotten past his introduction that we talked about last week. And so now starting in verse five, John is really going to get into the the real meat of what he is trying to communicate to his readers. And uh, as we go through these six scriptures, there are two things that I believe that John is really trying to do. Okay, Two things I think he's trying to accomplish. Number one, I think he's trying to test the faith of his readers. Much like we saw Paul do in 2 Corinthians 13, I think he's trying to test their faith to see what is really going on on the inside. And then number two, he's going to point them to the answer. He's going to test them, and then he's going to point them to the answer. And with this approach in mind, John starts this way. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and announce to you. Now, this is actually a very clever setup by the Apostle John because he is clearly trying to create some suspense here for his readers. Let me remind you that he's just told them that Jesus is the Son of God, that he has been made known to us, that he has been revealed to us. And then he says, all right, so here's the message that we heard from him. And so you can imagine the readers beginning to to lean in, eagerly awaiting what he is about to say 
And then this is what he reveals. He says very simply that God is light. That God is light. Now, you might initially think that that would be anticlimactic for those who would be reading this letter. But actually, in this one word, John is communicating a lot about the nature and the character of God. He's speaking to a group of people who for generations, for generations looked at God as angry. They looked at God as demanding. They looked at God as harsh. And in this one word, John demolishes all of these misperceptions as he wisely reveals, no, God is light. Like this is who he is. And maybe you noticed that, but John doesn't say that God is a light or that he simply displays light. He says God is light. In other words, this is his very nature. This, this is who he is. And so the question begs, in what way is that true? In what way is God light? And there are a few things that we can immediately take from this depiction. And that is when scripture speaks of God as light, it's most commonly symbolic of three different things, okay? And those three things are purity, truth, and goodness. So, so when John says God is light, he's saying God is pure, he is truth, and he is good. Like as opposed to evil, our God is good. But, but then John takes it up a level because then he says this, and in him there is no darkness at all. No darkness in him, which means not only is he pure, but he is perfectly pure. Like there's no mixture of, of sin or wickedness in him at all. Not only is he truth, but he is full of truth. There's no error, no ignorance, no, no falsehood in him at all. Not only is he good, but he is entirely good. Every good thing that we have, we can ultimately look to him as the author and the giver of those things. He is good. This is what John begins to unpack as he reveals that God is light. But then after laying this foundation of the character and nature of God, he's going to immediately begin putting us in frame now. Meaning now that he has shown us a little bit about who God is, let's figure out where we fall in the picture. And so this is what he says next, starting in verse six. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, the light, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Go to verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, I wanna go back to this idea of this weeding out process that I mentioned earlier, because at this point in John's letter, this is what I believe he's trying to do. Because I think deep in John's heart, he can't possibly stand the idea that there might be more people in this audience who are deceiving themselves when it comes to Christ. I don't think he can bear the thought of any more so-called believers walking away and doing harm to the spreading of the gospel. And so as he continues down this line of thinking, one of the first things he says is, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. If we say we have fellowship, but we're walking in darkness, then we are lying. We talked a little bit about this last week, the idea of, of fellowship with him. And what we said is that fellowship ultimately means that, that we have a common or shared life with Christ. In other words, we, we share with him, we give him everything, and in response, he shares and gives us everything. 
And so what John is now trying to show us is how could we possibly have this shared existence and experience with Christ and yet simultaneously walk in darkness? How could that be possible? In other words, there's a disconnect here between what you're saying and what you're doing. You say that you have fellowship with him, and yet in reality, you're walking in darkness. There's a a disconnect. This is what he's trying to show us. Now, the more I started thinking about this, the more I realized the scary thing about this disconnect is that oftentimes we don't even realize that it's there. Like, like we don't even see this. It's not like we're intentionally claiming one thing and then doing the exact opposite. It's not like we're purposely trying to live a disjointed life, but the truth for many of us is that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's going on. Part of us wants to love Christ, but there are still some things we'd like to hang on to. Like part of us wants to give our lives to him, but we're just not willing to completely trust him with it. And as a result, listen, we have this disconnect in our lives between our supposed belief and what's really happening through our actions. In fact, let me show you some of the ways John continues to talk about this throughout his letter. This is interesting. Chapter two, verse four, he says, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. If you say that you know God, but aren't willing to obey him, there's your disconnect. Chapter two, verse 15, he says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. If you say you love the father, but you prioritize worldly things, there's your disconnect. Chapter four, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you say that you love God, but you hate other people. In fact, if you say you love God and you don't love other people, there's your disconnect. Over and over again, John's call is that we would really look inward by taking notice of what's happening outward. And as I began to read through some of these call-outs from John, I started to realize how much of an issue this really is in some of our lives. He talks about obedience. He talks about holiness. He talks about love. And I started to think to myself, where are we really at with these things? Like, honestly, if you were to look inward, what would you find in these areas? Do you really obey him? Do, do, you, really, do you really prioritize him? Like if you looked at your calendar, if you looked at your daily thoughts, is he really your priority? Do you really love other people? Like if you look at your social media posts, if, if you look at the way you treat people at work and at home and when you're out and about, do you really love people? Because here's what John says, what you do proves what you believe. Whatever you're doing is proving what's really going on on the inside. Now here's the thing with this. While I don't want to take the weight of that away, because I I think some of us really need to consider that, I do also want to bring some important context into play here, because baked into these words from John is the idea that even as believers, we are not perfect. And we know this, right? We, We are not perfect. In fact, inherent within the heart of every believer is knowledge of weakness and therefore dependence upon Christ, right? This is how it works. So so we know it's not about perfection. This is not legalism that we're talking about. And in fact, this is why John says, if we walk in the light, if we walk in the light, when he says this, he's talking about a a day-by-day process of, of walking with Christ. It's an active, continual process, and that is not done perfectly. 
That, that is not a, a flawless experience. It's active. It's, it's moving. Biblically, we might best understand this through the word sanctification. If you've never understood this word before, it's the process by which we are made more and more like Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a process. So listen, while redemption is a one-time event that seals us in Christ forever, and man, we can stand strong on that, sanctification is an active work where we grow in obedience, where we grow in holiness, where we grow in love. This is an imperfect process that we partake of. This is what John Piper says about it. I thought this was very helpful. As it relates to sanctification, he says, it is full of encouragement for imperfect sinners like us that you can have assurance that you stand perfected and completed in the eyes of your heavenly father, not because you are perfect now, but precisely because you are not perfect now, but are being sanctified, being made holy, that by faith in God's promises, you are moving away from your lingering imperfection toward more and more holiness. That's sanctification. By the way, this is why scripture talks about growth. It talks about maturation. It's why Paul says we are being conformed to the image of his son. It's, it's a process. And so let me say this very clearly to you. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect in order to prove yourself a follower of Christ. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, the only thing you need to do to be in Christ is believe. Believe in who he is. Believe what he's done. That's it. I don't want anybody thinking that I'm, I'm preaching salvation by works. No, scripture makes it very clear we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And again, we stand strong on that. But at the same time, if your actions aren't following your belief, even John says you're lying. <laughs> you're deceiving yourself. That's what is really going on. And with this knowledge now out there, he turns and says this in verse nine. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what he tells them. Now, here's what I believe John is doing, okay? I believe that John at this point is reaching out. I think he's sincerely reaching out to those who truly thought they were believers in Christ. People who were truly convinced that they had put their faith in him only to find that there was a disconnect. Man, I, I thought, I believed, I, I really did, but the truth is I'm walking in darkness. There's a disconnect between my belief and my actions. And to these people, John lovingly turns and says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us. He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to, to point them in this direction. Now, I wanna spend a few minutes talking about the concept of confession because I really think this is what John is trying to highlight in this verse. And the first thing that I want to say is, is the word confess is not a bad word. I know that we hear that word and immediately we wrap it with a bunch of negative connotations, but it's not a bad word. In fact, to confess something, think about how simple this is, is to acknowledge and agree with something. That's what it means to confess. In fact, John uses the exact same word later in his letter to say this. If anyone confesses, that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him. If anyone confesses, in other words, if anyone acknowledges and agrees that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him. So this is not a, a bad word. The problem with it is when we attach this to our failures and to our mistakes, there are a couple of things that we really have a hard time with. And in fact, two in particular that I think scripture very clearly shows us. 
And the first one is this. The reason we struggle so much with confession is because we would just much rather hide things than confess. We, we would just much rather hide and push it down and cover it up than actually bring it into the light. There's not a single one of us in here that swells up with joy and excitement to go admit a mistake. Not a single one of us. And this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. In fact, what's the very first thing they do when they disobey God? They hide from him. That was their instinct. This is something that's just inherent within each one of us. And John here speaks directly to this. And he says, if you say you have no sin, guys, you're just deceiving yourself. You're, you're lying to yourself. You're just acting like everything is all good when in reality, it's not. You're hiding. In fact, I love this quote from John Trapp. I thought this is so helpful. He says, no man was ever kept out of God's kingdom for his confessed badness, but many are for their supposed goodness. No, nobody's been kept out of God's kingdom because they've confessed and they've opened up and they've trusted God, but many are because they've tried to hide it. And see, that's our instinct. We're trying to hide from God. We don't trust him with our problems. We, we don't trust that he's gonna react the way that we want him to react, and so we're gonna, we're gonna hide. This is what Proverbs 28, verse 13 says. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. I want you to hear that. He who confesses will find compassion. That's the same word for mercy. You will find mercy when you bring these things to God. This is what we need to understand. This is what we need to do. Now, here's the second problem that we have when it comes to confession. And this initially you might want to push back on, but I promise you it is true. And that is when, when it really gets down to it, the reason that we don't want to confess is because we love the darkness. We, we love the darkness. Let's be honest. We like our bad habits. We, we don't want to give them up. And in fact, this is where we think joy is found. So we're just going to keep hanging out in the darkness. And the problem with that is, as long as we're hanging out in the darkness, we can't walk in the light. And Jesus has much to say about this. In fact, if we go to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus says this, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Verse 20, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I, I've come into the world. I've, I've been made known. In fact, my love, my grace, my mercy has been laid out for everybody to see. Yet and still men run to the darkness rather than running to me. Men love the darkness rather than loving me. And, and, and this is why John says, if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Now listen to me. What John has just said is amazing. What John has just revealed to us is, is almost too good to believe. Think about it this way. Why are we afraid to confess our mistakes? I want you to think about this. Why, why is our instinct to hide these things from God? Why is that the case? Well, because we're gonna be condemned. Because God is going to get angry with us. We're going to be in trouble with God. He's going to think differently of us. That's why we do that. But do you realize what John just said is the exact opposite of that? John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. 
Now listen to me, this, this is so important. That means when we confess, it is only good and right for him to forgive us and cleanse us through the blood of Christ. That means if we confessed and he did not forgive us, he would be unjust. He, he would be wrong. He would be unrighteous. That is the power of the sacrifice of Christ. That when you truly confess your sins to God, it is only right, it is only fair that he would forgive you. Anything other than that would be unbecoming of God. Think about the level of sacrifice. Think about the power of his blood that we are now just to be forgiven. See, we think God is faithful and just to condemn us, to pour wrath on us. It's the exact opposite of what John says. See, we hide things because we think if we take them to God, he's gonna be angry. He's gonna be frustrated. At the very least, he's gonna be so disappointed in us. And what John is saying is, no, when you take it to God, when you confess it, you're gonna be met with love. You're gonna be met with grace. You're gonna be met with mercy. You're gonna be met with forgiveness. This is the best news any one of us could hear. Because I know we've been holding on to these things, been hiding our mistakes because we're afraid of how God's gonna respond to us. We think we're gonna run to the Father and he's gonna put a finger in our chest. He's gonna start yelling at us. That's not at all what we read in scripture. He's ready to greet us with open arms. He's ready to embrace us, bring us into his kingdom. He's a good father. Some of us need to realize that today. Some of us need to, man, just stop hanging on to this stuff. We need to truly trust his word that he's faithful and just to forgive us.